open, outspoken, it's ophthalmology off the grid, an honest look at controversial topics in the field. I'm Blake Williamson. I'm Gary Wirtz. Hello, and thank you for tuning in to another episode of Ophthalmology Off the Grid. In this episode, Dr. Joseph Jira joins our hosts, Drs. Blake Williamson and Gary Wirtz, to share his experience with building and growing a business in ophthalmology, as well as potential pitfalls and successes for younger surgeons to consider. Thank you for listening. Support for this podcast comes from Bryn Mawr Communications. BMC produces a number of informative podcast series spanning a variety of topics in ophthalmology. Discover a new show at itube.net slash podcasts. Welcome to another episode of Ophthalmology Off the Grid. We are your hosts, Blake Williamson and Gary Wirtz. Gary, how you doing, man? I'm great. Uh, you know, the summer is flying by. We've had so many interesting experiences already. Just got back from a nice ACOS meeting. And uh, while we were there, we were both kind of chatting about this upcoming podcast and how excited we were to have the one and only Joe Jira on. So uh, yeah, Joe, thanks for, for uh, spending some time with us. Uh, on this season, we're talking about building your business and brand. And I don't know that there's anyone who would maybe have a more unique take on that. So uh, yeah, Joe, welcome to the podcast. Give us a little bit, uh, for those who don't know you, the two or three people out there who might might not know you, give us a little bit of a blurb on you, your practice, the you know St. Louis uh, ophthalmology scene, and uh, yeah, just a little bit of your background. No, so I, I finished my residency back in 1999, um, went to the University of Texas in Houston, came back to St. Louis, joined a couple guys in practice. And, you know, the claim to fame that I have is I, I got a group of guys together in St. Louis, and there are probably about 20 plus doctors to come together and create a surgery center. So we did that in 2000. And five, the center opened in 2007, and it's been a, a great venture for all of us. So a lot of these doctors were different in different practices. And, 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 you know, a lot of times people ask me, how did I get all these groups to come together? Because in a lot of other markets, there's so much competition and there's cutthroat competitiveness. And, um, you know, for some reason, you know, I was able to make it work and, and everybody's benefited from that. And it continues to this day. It's one of the larger surgery centers, probably the largest one in Missouri anyway. And we do close to, you know, 15, 16,000 cases there. And it's ophthalmology only has six ORs. So, um, and grew the practice, opened up probably four surgery centers in total um, in and around St. Louis. And in 2016, I sold um, three of the surgery centers in my practice to private equity. And from that moment on, I've been their chief medical officer and uh, we've continued to grow. We went through our first sale in 2020, right before the pandemic. So we really lucked out there. Let's let's dig. There's already so much so much meat on that bone uh, just of what you've said. First of all, Blake, have you ever heard of an ophthalmologist who's able to get other ophthalmologists to work together? I, I think this is the first time I've heard of this. Um, so what, what do you, what do you make of this? We're having a sidebar, Joe, just me and Blake here. What do you think? What do you think of this? 
Well, this is this is this is kind of a Joe Jira special. Um, you know, he he's uh he's sort of this mythical guy to me because he's a guy that I've never gotten to like hang with. I mean, we've had casual dinners or we bump into each other at conferences, and but we have mutual friends like Arsham Shabani on the surgery side or Don Knowles on the industry side. And these are people who just always tell me about this guy, Joe. Um, and, and for me, the, the, the business uh, mind is sort of what has always kind of stood out to me. Um, the surgery skills, of course, are there and, and all that. Um, but really um, sort of this unassuming quality, but yet he's able to kind of be a leader and kind of bring people together. Um, but from my understanding, it didn't really start out that way. You know, talking to Arsham Shabani, I said, Arsham, what should we ask Joe? And he said, definitely start with his first job and what that was like. He made very little money to start and the hustle was real. Maybe talk, can you take us back to the very beginning? What was that very, very first job like? <laughs> so he's talking about when I came out into private practice, I joined these two guys and they were, you know, really old fashioned and there was no guarantee of any salary. I came on with expectation that they had they were busy enough where they had overflow of patients. So I could come in, see that overflow of patients and sort of build my own practice. They calculated, you know, they estimated how many patients I would be seeing and how much money I would be making. And they just gave me an overhead number of about $9,000 a month. So I was expected from day one to pay $9,000 a month for my overhead, not knowing how much business, how many patients I would be seeing, just taking their word for it. Um, and they sort of stair-stepped it, you know, so the first three months I paid like, you know, 3000 a month and then, you know, 6000 a month for three months. And it sort of came out to $9,000 a month after the first year. I took the position because, you know, I knew that the practice was busy. I knew the potential for um, growth in that practice. And, you know, it was so old fashioned and things were run so inefficiently um, that the opportunity was there. They were still refracting using, um, you know, free lenses. They, they didn't even have four opters. That's, that was one of the conditions that I had when I joined the practice is they had to get four opters. That's a, that's a pretty big ask, Joe. How, how are you able to negotiate? That? <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, they, they, I don't know. It just, we clicked and we just, you know, we knew that it'd be a good fit and they sort of bent over backwards. I mean, we were, they were still using um, extra cap for a lot of their cases. When they, when I made them buy a FACO, I think they got the legacy um, and it was brand new to them and they were just using it for the INA portion of it, you know? And so, <laughs> yeah. So, so you really, so you really, you really transformed that. You transformed that practice pretty much. You, you kind of created a practice, then a practice, or did you leave that practice? Did you? No, no. We we sort of transformed it, and slowly over time, we sort of brought it up to you know up to speed with the current uh, you know standard of care, so to speak. Yeah. What do you? Did you? Did you? Um, you know, the, the thing when I was talking to Don Knowles, he was like, you know, Joe is so strategic, and that he had this plan from the very beginning. Uh, I don't know how, you know, did, did you, did you have this thought of bolt, you know, starting the surgery center, perhaps adding more bolting on the practices and becoming more regional for an eventual sale? Uh, many of us weren't thinking about private equity until probably the last 10 years. So I'm guessing that maybe you didn't start out like that, or maybe you did. I'm just curious, you know, what was your strategy for growth? No, it was just basically, it was just that it was growth. So, you know, having coming into this practice like I did, I think I made, you know, $38,000 the first year. 
But then <laughs> every year after that, it just kept doubling, you know, so it ended up being a really good thing. Um, early on, I started because I wasn't that busy. I, I got involved, uh, got to know some optometrists and started traveling a little bit, going to Hannibal, which is about 100 miles north of St. Louis to do some surgery. Again, just because I had time to fill and, and I wanted to get busy. Um, that led to a joint venture with Clarkson Eye Care in St. Louis. So a joint venture opening up a LASIK center. And at that time, you know, a lot of my colleagues were warning me not to work with optometry. And I saw, you know, I didn't see the risk. I didn't see the downside that they were telling me. And, you know, I saw the upside and working together with optometry has really been, um, you know, the backbone of my success. So we opened up the joint venture with Clarkson Eye Care. That grew, they were opening up nine or 10 locations a year. And by the time we sold, so I, I ended up getting ownership, part ownership of Clarkson Eye Care over time, just through the LASIK Center and things like that. Um, but when we sold in 2015, it became the platform practice for eye care partners. And at that time, we had 65 locations in and around St. Louis. So we had expanded quite a bit. Yeah. So I feel like one of your, I mean, honestly, I've known you for a while and, and we have had some dinners together and whatnot. And I've always, you know, I've always enjoyed our conversations, but it seems like, you know, we all have little special things about us and, and maybe we don't even know it, but it's kind of obvious to other people, but it seems like you have a real skill for getting people to collaborate or to work together or to be able to negotiate something where people can see, maybe they can give you what they want because they want to, because you can show them how working together or collaborating is in mutual interest. And, and ophthalmologists, especially, we are a hard group, I think, in general to, you know, it's like herding cats. We all, you know, you ask, you know, an ophthalmologist, five ophthalmologists, the right way of doing something, you'll get 10 different ways. You know, that's the old joke. What is, what is your approach when you are talking to folks about, you know, it seems like opportunities come your way and you're able to couch them in a way where people see this is better for all parties involved, like getting to that win-win. Is there, are there pearls in, in your approach that you've learned over time work, work to do that? It seems a lot of times when I've, when I've suggested opportunities for people, maybe I'm just not so good at this, but it's hard for me to maybe convince people that this is in their best interest. What has been your experience when you're trying to put people together who might naturally not want to work together? How do you get them to come to the table? Well, you know, a lot, it wasn't, it wasn't that hard, honestly. Um, you nailed it when you said it has to be a win-win. So you have to, you know, for anything to be successful for all parties involved, it has to be a win-win. And you just have to point that out to them. Um, sometimes it takes more than one occasion to do that. A lot of us ophthalmologists, especially are wired to be, you know, minimize the risk for us. Right. So they're always a little pessimistic. They're always looking at worst case scenario. Um, you have to, you have to have some risk tolerance. You have to be able to, you know, extend yourself a little bit, um, in order to, to advance sometimes. And, and that's what, that's what I bring to the table. And, you know, my history has proven that I've been able to do it. And that gives me a lot more credibility. So it gets easier over time. Um, you know, and I just, I just try to look at the pitfalls and try to avoid them, you know, point them out, make sure everybody's on the same page and, and, uh, you know, get them to, to extend themselves a little bit. Yeah. So Joe, you, you, um, once y'all sold to, uh, you, you guys sold to eye care partners, correct? 
Yeah, well, we sold to um, a private equity group called FFL, and that created iCare Partners. That was the birth of iCare Partners. So, so one of the unique things about you, uh, I know that you know you graciously said before the call, and 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 that there's a board of people that go after other practices that 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 serve iCare Partners and, and and are trying to grow iCare Partners, but kind of the word around the campfire is like you're one of the main guys, basically. And you may not say that about yourself, but uh, people look to you um, to go into markets and say, hey, who do we want to buy? and Who do we not want to buy? And I'm sure that you have a team around you as well. Um, but how did you, you know, talk about that? Because my understanding is that, you know, uh, your earnings from selling your practice, you put right back into iCare Partners to then go be a leader there to acquire other practices. Can you Can you walk us through that? Yeah, you know, so we're one of the few private equity companies where physicians can actually buy equity into it. Now, most of the time, historically, you've only gotten equity in these private equity rollups when you sold your practice. And so I sold my practice and in, in several surgery centers. I had a lot of equity in that. When we sold in 2020, gosh, we, we sold for $2.2 billion. And you know, I had a lot of equity that I did roll back in um, just because I believed in our company. And I think it's, it's, and it has, it's done great things. And we've almost tripled in size since then. But um, I've always been on the executive leadership team. I've been the chief medical officer. So I am involved with the, the M&A side of things. And, you know, I'm lucky to have great friends like you or great friends in industry that I can always get the background scoop on practices. We've never had to go out and cold call for practices. We've always had practices brought to us. We've never done some, you know, everything's been been uh, brought to us through brokers or just doctors approaching us through our website or whatever. Um, so I do. I've been lucky to to go out and meet all these doctors to see how different practices operate. It's been actually one of the, the most uh, fun things that I do in my job. Um, but, you know, there's a hundred different ways to skin a cat and there's a hundred different ways to run a practice. And, and it's just interesting to see uh, how differently things can can operate and still be successful so how, how do you how do you how do you decide who to buy i mean like what are the attributes of practices did you say you know what that's a practice we want to pick up versus you know what let's leave this alone what is it just it can't just be numbers and volume it's got to be the people i would assume but what's the what's the strategics there a lot of it has to, has to do with the the doctors, right? Their their quality of the doctors, whether it's the you know the the skill, the surgical prowess of it, and you know the growth potential of the practice. Honestly, so you know larger practices, like the the least desirable practice is a single doctor who is you know sixty five or seventy that just is looking at this as an exit, right? We don't want to acquire practices and, and clean them up or, or deal with the, the the hard parts of it of recruiting, especially in a smaller market and things like that. Um, so, you know, we're looking at, at quality of practices, basically. And You're probably probably looking at adjusted EBITDA too, if their EBITDA is too high, you know, if, if they're a little bit fat, they have a little bit overstaffed, like you might see an opportunity to kind of trim them up and have a, you know, have a better adjusted EBITDA and that way you can you, you could uh, you know do better and actually sell them for yeah. more later. Actually, it's the opposite, honestly. So when they're fat, um, it's hard to trim a practice, right? As soon as you start trimming things, the the practice culture changes. The 
you know, the productivity of the practice, the EBITDA can change. You can affect it, you know, negatively pretty quickly. So what's more desirable is a good practice that has good, you know, infrastructure, good doctors that isn't run well, because you know, you can start running it well and you can make it more profitable. And not only that, because it wasn't run well and their EBITDA wasn't what it should have been, you can get it for a lot cheaper. Uh, one of the things I think that is on a lot of our minds uh, collectively as ophthalmologists um, who may work with optometry is the regular, the, the recent um, cases that have been struck down, you know, antitrust, anti-kickback, uh, those sorts of things. I imagine, you know, we have our own processes internally and we have our own legal counsel and we have our own, you know, uh, way of making sure that we're operating within the bounds. I imagine that it is a lot more difficult and probably a lot more expensive. And the risk is a lot higher when you're dealing with a $2.2 billion company with, you know, 50, 100 plus practices. How can you just, can you talk, maybe you can't talk about it. If you can't, I totally understand just because of where we're at, but what is it like trying to manage that many practices in terms of the, the, just the overall culture and how you get everyone to work within the bounds of, of, of what we're all kind of worried about right now. Yeah, no, I mean, if you know anything about private equity, you, you should know that they're very, they're the ones that are very risk adverse, right? And everything has to be very, very clean. All the I's dotted T's crossed because they're expecting to sell this at some point down the road. So, you know, like anything, you don't want to have liabilities and things out there that could affect any potential sale of the company. So if anything, private equity has made a lot of these practices sort of clean themselves up, right? So we acquire lots of practices that have questionable, you know, things uh, that are going on. And, and a lot of these things used to be okay, uh, you know, years ago, but are not anymore. And so, you know, we do take the opportunity to, to get them in line and make sure they're, they're above board on every aspect of their practice. So a lot of it, um, you know, comes down as just changes that need to happen from joining eye care partners. And, you know, we rarely get any pushback once we explain to them why we're doing the things we're doing. One thing I, we always ask a series of questions, and I, I'm really curious to know how you know what you'll what your take on this will be. We've talked a lot about the successes that you've had, and you know we're we're thankful for those. Th frankly, because it's, I think it's made ophthalmology at least more interesting. Um, but tell us about maybe did you have an early failure or something that you wish you would have learned earlier, or something that didn't go quite right that then informed your future self about how to make better deals or, or pitfalls to, to learn from any, any lessons out there that you had to learn the hard way. The, the, the pitfalls, whenever you acquire a practice that, that is hard to run and hard to manage for whatever reason, you sort of learn from that. So you start to get red flags when you're meeting with these doctors, when I go out and have dinner with these doctors for the first time, and we're talking about their practice and, you know, uh, what their their vision of it is or why they're wanting to sell, you can start to pick up more of these red flags, you know? So those are some of the things I've learned over time. In terms of just practicing, uh, you know, I've been pretty lucky. I mean, obviously not everything I do is 100% successful, but um, I've, I've been pretty lucky. That's awesome. Yeah. What about, what about this? I mean, at, at this point, you know, you've, 
you you've made a lot of money. You've operated on lots of patients. You've transformed a lot of lives. Um, what's left there for you to do uh, in ophthalmology? Kind of where are you at in your career? In, in sort of what's the next you know ten to fifteen years look like? Uh, I'm I'm told tales of the Opto Mafia, which is your group of ophthalmology uh, colleagues in the St. Louis area, and you guys are like flying all over the world, Mahotra and all those dudes. I'm trying to get, I'm trying to get a seat on y'all on y'all's plane one day uh, when someone cancels. But I'm just curious, kind of like what what what's your what's your week look like? Are you are you practicing three days a week, four days a week, five days a week? Are you traveling a lot more now? And kind of where do you see yourself within the realm of like actually actual practicing of ophthalmology over the next ten years or so? Yeah, no, I so I still practice. Um, I still practice probably four four to five times a week. Uh, I do surgery only, so I've I transitioned my practice to hundred hundred percent surgical back in two thousand fourteen. So now I I currently do about close to three thousand cataracts a year, and I do a bunch of LASIK as well. Um, what What's nice about my position is I am the sort of owner of all these practices and eye care partners on paper because, you know, a doctor has to be the, the owner on paper. And so I have a license now in 19, you know, close to 19 states, every state we have a practice in. And there's been instances where some of the doctors have had to retire, you know, suddenly for medical reasons or whatever. And we have like a, a lot of uh, patients that need to be taken care of. So I fly to certain cities uh, periodically to do surgery. Um, I was going down to Wichita to Green Vision for nine or 10 months to do cataract surgery. I'd, I'd fly down there for a couple of days at a time, a couple of days uh, each month and, and do a bunch of surgery. Uh, I just, I'm doing that now in Scottsdale. So we have some practices in the Phoenix area and I'll go down there for, you know, a couple times uh, a month to do surgery. So it's been nice. You fly in, you just do a bunch of cases and you fly out. I see. So, so you're, so you're enjoying that. I mean, the other way to look at that, you know, the, the other side of that coin is like, that's labor. I mean, that, that's, that's, you're leaving your family and friends and you're flying across the country to, to be the surgeon. Right. I mean, I'd kind of like to just own it and not have to do the surgery ideally, but you have to kind of, but I'm guessing, I'm guessing you actually, you're enjoying that at this point, even still. Oh, I, I very much enjoy it, actually. So it's it's challenging. It's it's getting up and, and working in a different market, a different environment, different surgery center. Um, you know, I, I stay at comfortable places. I eat out very nice at nice restaurants with the local reps and things like that. Um, meet a bunch of new doctors. Uh, in Phoenix, we have uh, Nationwide Vision, which has about 80 locations in and around Arizona. And so that's it's optometry only. And that's where we get... A lot of our patients from um, Eye Care Partners is one of the biggest, like vertically integrated private equity rollups. So there's not many that do both ophthalmology and optometry. So that's what creates all these patients, and it's it's fun. So my kids are out of the house now. I'm an empty nester, so it gives me time to do all this stuff. Um, one of these days, my wife has no desire to go with me, and I'm usually only gone for a few days at a time, so it's not bad. She's happy. She's happy to get some alone time, right? Yeah, She's. Yeah, <laughs> just kidding. You know how it is. <laughs> I do. I'm empty nester too. So yeah, it's 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 a great time, honestly. Um, where where does private? I'm curious about this. Where does private equity go from here? I mean, some of the things that we've thought about, you know, that maybe private equity would be good for the guys who are exiting, maybe not so good for the newer people. I'm not sure that that's played out quite as well. 
um, where I, I do think there's a lot of people who are coming into ophthalmology and maybe even being taken better care of than you and I were starting off. Now, maybe the ceiling isn't quite as high, but you know there are definitely becoming some more um, boundaries around what is a good contract look like and maybe a lot more opportunities. And I don't necessarily think a lot of the younger folks realize maybe how good it is right now compared to where we started. Um, but where does where does private equity go? I mean, I've I've wondered for a while if maybe private equity isn't going to do the rest of us a big solid, a big favor in terms of helping to ne negotiate better rates, for example. You know, Medicare, Medicaid, private insurers, they just keep sort of, it's like a race to the bottom. But at some point, does, does private equity have a big enough voice to say, you know, we've got we to gotta start readjusting these figures. Where, where you, and beyond that, what happens, you know, five, 10 years down the road? What's the roadmap look like? I'm just curious, like, look into the future, Joe, and tell us what you see happening. I'm curious. Well, no one knows, right? So we do have, um, you know, we have some of the commercial contracts that we negotiate with and we do get better pricing. So there is some of these practices, some, some of these doctors that join us that get a, a lift just from joining eye care partners, right? Um, but with Medicare and things like that, we have a voice. We Private equity has money to spend for advocacy. And we've had trips where we go to Washington, D.C., and we send a, a group of our doctors to go meet with a lot of the senators down there. Um, you know, we work with certain uh, law firms that that have, you know, the knowledge of what's going on uh, in terms of the the government and the, the payer, you know, Medicare payments and things like that. So, um, they they do take it seriously and they they do put resources towards it. So I think it's a good thing for all of us overall um, because we all want the same things, right? We want patients taken care of and we want to be treated fairly. So um, private equity in, you know, I don't know where it's going at this point. I think the penetration into ophthalmology is still pretty small. I think it could be a lot larger. So I think this will go on. I think you're going to see a lot of consolidation um, the, the quote unquote, smaller private equity companies, these are still companies with 25 or 50 million in EBITDA, which they're not small by, by any means of the, that word, but, um, you're going to see consolidation of those, um, interest rates have changed things. So we're in a new chapter in the economy where these interest rates, cause private equity, you know, they borrow a lot of their money as well. They, they leverage what they have and like all of us and. You know, this is going to put a lot of those smaller private equity companies in in a little bit of a bind. Um, so I think you're going to continue to see consolidation. And at, at some point, you know, there's markets in medicine, dermatology, dentistry, you know, orthopedic that have been doing this for a lot longer and they're still going strong. So I think uh, I don't think the end is going to be anywhere in our careers, honestly. So the nice thing, going back to, to Blake's earlier question about where I see myself, you know, I think one of the nice things, I'm hiring a lot of doctors to take over my practice. Um, I'm 52, so I think I'll be practicing not more than another 10 years. I think I'm going to stop operating clinically um, and doing a little more maybe administrative stuff or just calling it quits. But I think what private equity does is it allows you to do that. Right before when we were cutting back, we still have to manage our overhead, pay our overhead, and we just take home less. The way the model is now, when you're getting paid a certain percentage, you can sort of cut back and not really take a big hit. 
So it's allowed me to do a lot. And, and, you know, believe me, I would love to just travel a few times a month in different areas and, and just operate, which is something private equity can, can afford me to. So it's, it's been good. And I think it, it can provide, you know, a lot of people the opportunity to, to tailor their, their career however they want, really. Joe, what about that? Um, in the last few minutes we have just, um, you know, what about that young doctor that's listening right now? Um, who uh, outside of ophthalmology, almost kind of switching gears a bit, um, is, is looking to kind of set themselves up for success from a, from a business sense. Is there any kind of like um, things that you wish you had done when you were, let's say, 29, 30, 31 years old, kind of getting into the real world, um, whether it be hiring the right financial advisor or, you know, setting up, you know, your your disability plan, all sort of the the, the basics that you're, you're put through for the, for the young you know, listeners that are listening um, from a business sense, is there anything they need to be doing um, right at this time? You know, I think I think just focusing on your career and building your career, um, that's where you're going to generate most of your income. Um, you know, saving away a little bit, taking, you know, a little risk at times, you know, can, can pay off quite a bit. Um, I do a lot of business outside of ophthalmology. You know, I own a lot of other businesses and, and, a lot of people get excited when they can invest outside of ophthalmology or even within ophthalmology. And I would just tell them, you're going to have tons of opportunity for that. Don't jump on the first one that, that you see just because you're so excited to, to do something. Um, there's going to be a lot of opportunity to, to make money outside of, of just practicing. Yeah. You got a sidebar on that. Like you don't you in like restaurant, multiple restaurants and stuff. Like what, what are you involved in? Like all kinds of crazy stuff. Oh right? yeah. I own, I own restaurants. I have a custom home building company, an HVAC company um, opening. You know, I have, I just, I just bought part of an optical lab in, in Las Vegas that wasn't doing well. I have a custom sunglass line. Yeah. I do a lot of things. Giras? Just, can we get the Joe Jira's specials? <laughs> you can get what? Yeah, absolutely, man. All right. I have, I actually, Joe, I actually, I'm going to call you about this. I've got a sunglasses design that's been cooking up here for about 10 years. I just haven't known who to talk to about it. So I'm going to talk to you offline about my, about my sunglasses idea. Okay. Absolutely. Absolutely. Revolutionary. I don't have any ideas. I just want to be your friend. <laughs> Joe. Here, Joe, next time you have a free moment, which won't be anytime soon. I want you to come to Lexington. We'll fly Blake up. I'll take you out to Jeff Ruby's, my favorite steakhouse, and we will unpack all of this uh, over a nice dinner. How's that sound? Oh, I'd love that. That'd be great. Right. That's awesome. Joe, thanks so much. Your time is so valuable. We appreciate what you've done in our profession. We appreciate your friendship. And uh, you are welcome to come back anytime, brother. Thanks. Appreciate right. it. Thanks. Until next time, this has been Ophthalmology Off the Grid. This has been another episode of Ophthalmology Off the Grid. Thank you to our guest, Dr. Joseph Jira, for speaking with our hosts, Drs. Blake Williamson and Gary Wirtz, and sharing his experience with building a business and brand in ophthalmology. 